Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, July 15th. We begin with a look at Stampede, but beyond the rodeo, Midway and Corn Dogs. 770 CHQR City Hall reporter Adam Toy sheds some light on the opportunities the greatest outdoor show on earth offers up to politicians. And this year's edition is no different with our civic election just a few short months away. Earlier this month, the Calgary Zoo announced the return of the polar bears for the first time in over 20 years. But this time out, the purpose of the exhibit is focused much more on conservation. We discuss with the professor of biological sciences. Next, it's the new sport of billionaires. We discuss the space race between Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and whether it's being done for science and furthering space exploration or simply as an ego boost for some of the world's wealthiest entrepreneurs. And finally, working from home during the pandemic has had many of us thinking about where our homes should be. We speak with realtor Justin Haver on a new trend emerging, the real estate boom in Calgary's bedroom communities. Calgary Stampede, many things to many people and for politicians, it's a great opportunity to get some face time with people ahead of an election. Well, our very own Adam Toy, our 770 CHQR City Hall reporter, followed a few mayoral hopefuls to find out how they are taking advantage of the 10-day Western event. Pancake breakfasts. Pre-pandemic, a common event for Calgarians of all ages to attend during the Calgary Stampede. It's also a common time for politicians to descend on the city to host things like the Premier's Breakfast. Good morning, Calgary! Are you having a good stampede? But this year is a little different, with municipal candidates on the campaign trail. How many pancakes do you think you're going to eat? Probably two. Previously, the election period didn't begin until September. This year, it started in January. So in 2021, civic candidates are openly on the hustings. My name's Jill Teeters. I'm Jeff Davison. I'm also running for mayor. Pretty cool, hey? We followed councillors Jeff Davison, Jeremy Farkas and Jyoti Gondek Wednesday as they attended Stampede-themed events looking to connect with Calgarians as they serve as councillor and hope to serve as mayor. It was also an opportunity to serve up breakfast. Awesome, here you are. Jeremy Farkas. Well, South Centre's uh, Stampede Breakfast is always the biggest event in my ward, and it's just really nice to be able to catch up with folks and to see people again. I know that uh, it's been a real long uh, last 18 months or so, but it's just, again, just really nice to, to be out and about and uh, flipping flapjacks again. You know, after two years off, I thought I'd be rusty, but it just comes back to you. Jeff Davison was another council member at the South Centre Mall for the Calgary Stampede Caravan Breakfast. What am I going to be doing here this morning? Uh, you know, talking to as many people as I can, hearing the Calgary story. What do people want to see more of in their city? What do the people want to see less of? And whether I'm here as the councillor for Ward 6 or campaigning, uh, my job is to represent Calgarians, and that, that's what we're here to do today. Some questions were specifically about things like roads, schools, and taxes. My house is worth about $325,000, but my taxes are about the same. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do about taxes? So over the past couple of years, we've actually done a lot to reduce that, that operational spend. So the operational spend is where your property taxes go. Some questions were more direct. Why should we vote for you? Yeah. What are you planning <laughs> for if you become mayor? Retirees Ed and Angie Donay have come out to many pancake breakfasts over the years. Have you, in past years or even in past events this year, met a, a city councillor or somebody even running for mayor? Can't say that we have, have we? No, we no. haven't. 
And Colleen Sanderson, mother of one, says she has more questions for the candidates. I'd like to know um, what the platforms are. I'd like to be a little better informed and in how they're going to bring us out of this pandemic and how they're going to get the city rebuilt as the you know as we as we move on. With half of Albertans having their second dose, there's still hesitancy to be among vast groups of people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wear this the whole time. Oh, good. Jyoti Gondek. Especially because I'm running in an election, I have to think about my campaign team. So I've got, you know, hundreds of volunteers from different areas of the city with different family situations and personal situations. So after a lot of lengthy conversations with my team, I made a decision to try to limit the number of Stampede events I go to. I will not be going on Stampede Park just out of concern for the members of my team who can't be vaccinated. But for these type of community-based um, functions, I thought it was important to be here. On Wednesday, Gondek visited Silvera for seniors in Shoulders, where they were having a Stampede-themed lunch. Hi, how are things? Fair to Midland. Good. Good to hear. Are you enjoying the, uh, the festivities today? I believe so. Yeah. Being at the seniors' lunch helped her gain some insights into the lives of elderly Calgarians, especially during the pandemic. If there's takeaways from this for me, it's to make sure that we are not ignoring our senior population, that we are making sure the facilities that we are stewarding as a local government are in the best shape they can be. And just to really understand, you know, what our role is in taking care of an aging population and the facilities that serve them. Having attended 11 stampedes as mayor, Nenshi says the 10-day event is a great time to get out and meet Calgarians. It's actually incredibly important for candidates because it's an opportunity to talk to so many people, way fewer people than normal, but still talk to a lot of people. And there's still three more months before Calgarians cast their votes. On the campaign trail, Adam Toy, Global News. It's been 22 years since the Calgary Zoo had a polar bear, but they're coming back by 2023. And uh, why put them in the zoo is the question that we're uh, posing this morning and digging into. Andrew DeRocher is a biological sciences professor at the University of Alberta who's been studying polar bears for 38 years. We're just having an audio issue here. Uh, yes, of course, he has been uh, studying the polar bears for 38 years. He says uh, the zoos uh, play an important role in education, conservation, and in research. So we say good morning to Dr. DeRoche. Yes, good morning. Thank you for taking the time with us this morning. We appreciate it. Uh, the, the bears, uh, long-time Calgarians will remember this. They didn't fare so well at the Calgary Zoo the first time they were here. So what's going to change this time? Visually, what will we see in their habitat? Well, the first thing is the polar bears you know, in the olden days, didn't do very well in captivity, and that's because the type of enclosures that we use for them. I mean, the classic one was just a big cage, and that's not what the modern enclosures look like. They're, they're much larger. They have a lot of natural elements. And the big thing for polar bears, I mean, these are really intelligent animals, and you have to keep them entertained. And I visited uh, sort of the world-class zoos all over North America and Europe, and the zoos that do it really well have a very big enrichment program. And so it's just simple things. The trainers every day are hiding food in the enclosure and the bears are out active. You can train these animals as well. And so it's, it's a little bit like having your dog at home. If you don't keep them entertained, they get destructive or they go kind of strange. And, and that's the same thing with polar bears in captivity. So, I mean, let's look at why we actually even have an issue with polar bears, a disappearing habitat for these beautiful animals. And how much trouble are they truly in? 
Well, it, it depends. You know, across the Arctic, we have 19 populations of polar bears, and some of them are doing just fine and will continue to do fine probably almost to the end of this century. But a lot of the ones further south, um, perhaps around Churchill, Manitoba, and Ontario, uh, those populations are in trouble already because of loss of sea ice due to climate change. So it's... Um, it's not a dire situation. We still have bears everywhere that they've always lived. But it's when we look forward, sort of in the in the sort of the 30 to 40 year range, that we really get concerned. But we do have some populations that have already declined. I'm wondering, you know, as far as the setup is concerned, we talked a little bit about you know, what it'll look like as far as their environment. But will scientists like yourself have any input into the new polar bears' habitat? Uh, that uh, are you guys being consulted? Usually, yeah, usually the various zoos are talking to researchers to try to find out different elements. But, you know, the best people to go to are the the zoos that do it really well. So, uh, for example, the San Diego Zoo has a really good enclosure. Uh, the best one by far that I've seen is actually the Assiniboine Park Zoo in Winnipeg. They have done a fantastic job. And, of course, they've got a pretty steady stream of polar bears coming out of Manitoba. These are like cubs that get orphaned and so they've got a fair number of bears in that capacity facility and so the idea of having a second good world-class facility in calgary is actually quite a good option for some of these bears can you give us an example about what researchers scientists might learn from captive polar bears that would ultimately help the wild bears yeah, it, it's simple. I mean, you can train bears to do a lot of different things. And one of the things that's been done most recently is actually teaching them uh, how to walk on a treadmill so we can measure how much energy they're burning. And so this is important because, you know, these bears move over huge, huge areas. So an Alberta grizzly bear might move over 500 square kilometers in a year. Mm. But if you get into a polar bear, they can be moving over 150 or 200,000 square kilometers in a single year. Wow. Um, so these are huge areas. But to try to understand what it means for a polar bear to move over those different areas, we need some sort of measure of how much energy they're burning. And that can be easily done in zoos. Um, and it can also do it to find out how much energy they're burning when they're swimming. Um, so these are sort of, and the bears just love these sorts of exercises. They, they just put them in an area and you just measure how much carbon dioxide they're producing as they're walking. So it's a really quite simple sort of experiment. But things like that, for example. I'm looking forward to seeing it. A couple more years, wait yeah. to 2023. But uh, thank you for your discussion this morning. It's been my pleasure. That is Andrew DeRocher, a biological sciences professor at the University of Alberta. Elon Musk, Sir Richard Branson, and Jeff Bezos are all super rich and are all headed for space. Branson got there last week, in fact. Well, Bezos will be there soon, and Musk's SpaceX program is making near weekly test launches of their Starship as well as more frequent use of their Dragon X capsule to ferry astronauts and cargo to the International Space Station. Technology futurist Ian Kahn is asking the question, is this a race for recognition rather than exploration? And we say good morning to Ian Kahn right now. Hi, Ian. Morning. Thank you, for, Thank you for having me. Thank you for taking the time with us. Well, is there any value um, as far as moving society and exploration of uh, space uh, forward to the, these men doing what they're doing, or is it all about the ego? Andy, I think, I think there are two different um, sides to this. 
first of all, we are at a very initial stage of space becoming commercialized and space exploration moving from government entities backed up uh, missions and expeditions to the private sector now coming into the into the into the play. So SpaceX, uh, obviously uh, Amazon and Virgin uh, are all private companies that are now actively taking part into this. And with that comes a lot of criticism because of everything else that these companies are part of and what they do. I really believe that we've got to look at this overall picture, not just right now and not just for the next 12 months, but also what's the long-term impact of this privatization and would it really lead to something innovative for, for, for mankind? It's so true, Ian. You know, we, we love to criticize those that have the money or the technology to do what we can't or are unable to do. So why not just let them do it, right? I mean, if it's their money, if something good comes of it, great. And if it doesn't, well, we've enjoyed watching it, right? Absolutely. So I think I think as people, as human beings, we're, we're just used to, uh, you know, commenting and, and feeling things. And it's all good. I think it's good to have criticism. It's good to have uh, some kind of constructive feedback that can that can power you know uh, things but i think if these companies had had, had a better uh way of doing things in other areas and and being more conscious of doing social good i think that would definitely have helped but i'm not saying any of them are bad people they're all uh, they all have access to a lot of uh money cash resources and now they're able to spend it on things that would be that would have been impossible in the last 10, 15, 20 years. And that is what has changed. The power, the financial resources have gone from government entities to private sector. And collectively, Bezos, Musk, and, um, and Branson are worth about $400 billion. That's a, that's a staggering amount of money mm. that's available to them. I, I really congratulate all of them for being visionaries, but then I'm also on the side of caution saying, hey, we've also got to solve some of the problems on the, on the planet, although, it's not their responsibility alone, but because they have all the money, I think for some reason we, we tend to point fingers at people who are ultra rich and ultra successful. That's human nature. Four hundred billion, I believe you said with a B. It's interesting to me, and also uh, you know this this event and and, the, and how things are in twenty twenty one. Because I'm not sure how many years ago, maybe fifteen twenty. Uh, I don't have the exact date in front of me when NASA was scaling back in the government in the U S. For example, the space programs cut, hacked, and slashed. We thought, what could happen now? And then they started opening these contracts and competitions to a certain extent. So without that one change, we might not see the innovation that we're seeing today. And you're right. See, in the last um, a few years, three, three to five years, um, uh, Musk, especially Elon Musk, especially has done many different things. He, they've uh, they've uh, created the lithium-ion battery, and that's powering Tesla cars. Uh, they've uh, they have the Starlink uh, program, which is launching a lot of satellites into space that would give internet coverage across the world. Of course, with criticism that that there's other impacts of that. But many things that are innovative, many things that are changing human condition, giving us the power of communication. Look at Amazon. Everybody knows Amazon. Everybody possibly mm-hmm. orders things from Amazon. But we still criticize Bezos for, for other reasons and say, hey, he's, you know, he's doing some other things that he shouldn't be doing. But we've got to look at the overall picture. Innovation has a cost. Progress, tech, technology advancement has a cost. And if we were to criticize Edison for inventing the light bulb and saying, hey, he wasted 999 
uh, light bulbs, and that was a waste of money. But the last one, you know, the thousandth one, was the was the right thing to do. We can It's it's difficult to kind of put that into context now. So, so true. we've got to look at we've got to look at the overall long term impact of this, not just the short term. And innovation comes at a cost, and that's what's happening right now. And somebody, Ian, has to get the ball rolling, right? There was a time where people thought no one would ever go to outer space. And look where we are now. We talk about space tourism. So for that to happen, and it eventually will, somebody's got to start it. And and that's what these guys are doing. So, you know, even though at this point it seems unachievable for most to have enough money to do it, I'm sure at some point in the future, it'll be quite commonplace, do you think? I think so, and I don't know if the common person, if I would be able to buy a ticket into space in the next two to five to ten years, but maybe my grandchildren will be able mm-hmm. to do it. Maybe our the next generations will be able to do uh, many more things that this entire space race will feel, right? Experiments that NASA did in the past are now products. For example, the GPS, the water purification system, uh, and the Canada arm, a part of that. A subset of that is used for, for surgery, as an example. So this, this will lead to a lot of other innovative things that will trickle down and we'll be able to use them in our lives in different forms as other innovators and scientists and, and inventors and entrepreneurs will take those big ideas from space and, and put them into, into actual products and solutions in the world. So that will happen. And that's what I'm excited about because that could lead to hundreds and thousands of different ideas and solutions that could change our lives here on the planet for those who are not in space. Very interesting, and mm-hmm. it's uh, going to be uh, an awesome time to watch this unfold, and uh, whether or not it's ego or uh, just good old-fashioned adventure, I, I love watching it. Thanks so much for your time, Ian. You're welcome. Thank you so much. That is Ian Kahn, technology futurist, and uh, you can find him online, Ian, I-A-N, Kahn, K-H-A-N dot com. That, that price point now, as Ian alluded to, and we were hearing earlier this week, 250 thousand dollars perhaps yeah i mean the price will it go down is this is a really crude example sue but i do remember our, our first computer ever <laughs> um was a commodore 64 and i think yeah. my dad paid fifteen hundred dollars for it and it's one nine hundred thousandth uh, uh, less powerful than the iphone in my pocket right now um and computers i mean yeah you can go get it if you a laptop for 300 bucks these days I, yeah it's true and so the price will come down yeah. eventually, and it will be affordable for people. So, okay, there's my question for you. Andy, you going to space? If it's affordable enough and you can go, you've got the money, Abs- would you go? Absolutely not. Well, a new trend is emerging thanks to the pandemic. People are trading in the city life to cash in on the lower cost of living in surrounding towns. Real estate in places like Cochrane and Airdrie have taken off, sparking a bit of a mini-boom in bedroom communities. Well, Justin Haver of Justin Haver & Associates joins us now to explain what is behind this shift. Good morning, Justin. Good morning, Sue and Andy. How are you guys this morning? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. What are you seeing and hearing from clients and people that you meet? Why are people choosing these smaller towns now these days? Well, you know, it's all about affordability and lifestyle. You know, this pandemic has changed so much. In the midst of trying to stop the spread of COVID-19, work culture has evolved. Now many people can work from anywhere and eliminating the concerns about the commute or putting an emphasis more on comfort of the home and obviously lifestyle. Justin, how much does it have to do with our home buying budget? Is, is there a price difference and what is it? You know, it's a pretty significant price difference. I mean, if you look at the average price of a two-story home in Northwest Calgary, which is about 2,000 square feet, 
sits at about 613000 Now, for the same size home in Cochrane, you can get for about 560000 So, you know, a significant difference right there in price. So, you know, I guess, are they becoming hot spots, these surrounding areas? Like, are you really seeing, is it, is it becoming, a, can we call it a boom? Or are you seeing and, and feeling that? You know, we're totally feeling a boom in these uh, small bedroom communities, specifically Airdrie and Cochrane, uh, where, you know, here in Calgary, you know, in the kind of in the peak of the pandemic, we saw a little over 30% of homes selling at list price or above. Now, in the last 30 days, roughly 35% of the homes that sold in Cochrane sold for over list price, and about 38% of homes that sold in Airdrie sold at list price or above so you know that means that there's obviously a shortage of supply for single-family homes and people are jumping on them as soon as they hit the market if, if someone's been a big uh, like a long time calgary or a long time big city dweller and they're thinking about moving outside of the big city so to so to speak how do we begin the process like so what are sort of sort of some of the things that you tell clients they should consider before they make that move well, first and foremost, you know, like any realtor, they will advise their clients to ensure that they have their financing secured, have their, uh, you know, down payment in their bank account so they can jump on a property when it hits the market. Obviously, work with a real estate professional who has, you know, access to both, uh, you know, properties when they hit the market and some that are coming onto the market, you know, for example, like a coming soon program, so that they can be first in line to get you know, into these properties as soon as they hit the market because, you know, with shortage of supply, people are jumping on them and, uh, you know, you can't expect to get into some bidding wars. Do you you think this is a quick trend though, Justin, or or do you think people might even push farther out from the bedroom communities looking for an even more quiet lifestyle as we move on and we've, we've learned lessons coming out of this pandemic? You know, we have seen uh, a lot of people that look for acreages as well, you know, because they want more space and they want a, a, a slower, quieter lifestyle, which, uh, you know, seems to be quite appealing to many these days. Well, fortunately, we have a lot of different options if you don't want to live in the big city, you know, between Chestermere and Cochrane and uh, Okotoks. So, you know, you can maybe even go further down south of High River, Strathmore uh, to, the, to the east. I'm wondering, is there a hot spot? I know that they're all very unique, right? They are all very unique. I mean, they all offer, uh, you know, a different lifestyle. You know, if you want to live in Chestermere, you have the beautiful lake there that many people enjoy both in the summer and winter. And, uh, you know, so there's many options around the city of Calgary for those that don't want to live in the big city. Yeah, I mean, bottom line, I think, uh, you know, we're, it's not the end of people working from home by any means. Mm-hmm. And if your money can go further outside of the big city, it could be a trend that continues. Thanks so much for joining us, Justin. Always appreciate your take on things. Thank you for having me and have a wonderful day. You too. That's Justin Haver, Realtor with Justin Haver and Associates, Remax First. You can go online at justinhaver.com. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.